Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning on a Monday, the 8th of May. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York, Tom Keene in Paris, where plans are underway for the inauguration of a new president. Centrist Emmanuel Macron won 66% of the votes yesterday. The far-right candidate Marine Le Pen had 34%. Macron will take office on Sunday. And between now and then, we expect to get details on who will comprise his cabinet and who will be France's next prime minister on the show today. A host of great guests from France, economists, political scientists, and investors and Rashir Sharma will join us here in New York, the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley. I believe my co-host Tom Keane has made his way from the TV studio to the radio studio. Tom, we have bravo <laughs> yesterday. That was oh. a, a, a marathon performance, but uh, well done, you. Uh, it was wonderful <laughs> yes. to capture the moment, David Gura, on the River Seine. As all of our listeners know, that had the privilege of coming uh, to France uh, to be on the Seine by the Eiffel Tower. Uh, it was just absolutely fabulous. And then to walk over later that evening to the Champs-Élysées and to see the celebration, the horns honking, the flags waving was really something. And, of course, we all saw the drama at the Louvre yeah. uh, as uh, well. Uh, David, what was the view from the U.S.? What was your takeaway from the festivities in France. Yeah, I mean, I think that we were we were all looking to see, obviously, what, what this would mean domestically, what this is going to mean for politics in France. But for those of us who watched what happened in the Netherlands unfold and wondered if we would see uh, a similar move away from from the populist currents in France, uh, it was confirmation of the fact that maybe yeah. the, 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 the strength of that populist movement wasn't what we thought it was uh, just a few months yeah. ago. Let me bring in our esteemed guests. I guess if you start strong, which we like to do at Bloomberg Surveillance, you can do no better in France, than Maurice Levy, his decades of experience at Publicis, his visibility within the world at Davos and at other organizations, but of course, far more importantly, his affection for his friends. Maurice, wonderful to have you with us with David Gura and in New York. Uh, you gave us a wonderful history lesson earlier of de Gaulle through this fifth republic. We spoke of a sixth republic and the generational change. How does Mr. Macron bring the rest of France mm. towards him? It is a fractious nation, isn't it? First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to share a few views on what happened. I think that Emmanuel Macron will disrupt everything, and he will try at least to disrupt everything. We never had a president so young in France uh, since Napoleon uh, and we never had someone who has the will and the determination to change things and to address the real issues. We are facing a lot of uh, problems and issues and uh, uh, if you look only at the internal situation of France, we need to fix unemployment, which is uh, very high, more than 10%. We need to fix the debt, which is more than 100%. We need to uh, fix the, the uh, taxes and uh, other uh, social charges, which are weighing too much in uh, the growth of our country. Uh, and we have to change labor laws. When you look at everything that he has on his plate, you can see that it is a big, big undertaking that he has in front of him. So uh, we, we all wish that he will be successful. We are all very supportive because it is uh, hope that happened yesterday, more than the election, mm -hmm. more than any of the former election. Maybe the only one which is comparable and very different at the same time is when Mitterrand uh, has been elected in 81. Uh, he, 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 as the socialists have been out of government for more than 20 years, right. it was huge for a lot of, for half of France. Right. Here, it's uh, 
something which is very different because it is uh, first and foremost with a young generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have seen that yesterday at uh, Le Louvre with all these young black blancbeurs, as we say, mm -hmm. where you have the, the black, the Arabs and uh, the Caucasian, the classic Caucasian together. Uh, and this has been a first since uh, the World Cup of 1998. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see that there is uh, a, a momentum of hope, right. which is quite unique. Now, let me bring in David Gurra in New York. David? Maurice, great to speak with you once again. Of course, we know of your, your background in advertising, the message so important to you. What was it about this candidate's message that resonated so well and so widely in France? I, I think that the message was himself. I think that the message was not so much because when you go through the program, it, it, it has not been a program uh, which came uh, as uh, one solid program at the beginning of his uh, journey. It, it was himself. It was uh, the rejuvenation. And I think that uh, the fact that it was rejuvenating and breaking down all the silos, and it was also this very important message, which was ni gauche ni droite, no left, not right. Uh, and he didn't want to be uh, portrayed as a representative of the right wing or the left wing. He didn't want to be seen as a socialist and nor uh, at a, uh, as a, a, a only uh, conservative. Mm. Uh, and I think that the ni gauche ni droite is probably what has been uh, uh, the most important message which has been well received by most of the young people. They didn't see with the old uh, parties a, a representation of their hopes and who they are. It was some 64 some years ago that you came from Morocco. Explain to us where the ghosts of the Arab world will, will go for France. If we look at Algiers, the collapse of Algiers and all of the decolonization, what will happen now to that historic tension that we see in Paris and, frankly, polarizing around all of France. How will that change under Macron? Uh, when I arrived, I was a child and I was the first born in Morocco because my family was a refugee because of the war. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm not a fair representative. I understand that, but you've lived, the, but you've lived I, showing up. Yes, definitely. And I think that uh, along the years, we have uh, created the situation where we opposed generation to generation, communities to other communities, and um, instead of trying to unite the people and to create one single uh, country with one single community, everything that has been done, if you look at the last 50 years, was to uh, fragment the country, uh, not only between refugees and uh, uh, French roots uh, uh, people, it is also between uh, the people coming from the countryside and the people in the cities, the people of uh, the universities and the mm -hmm. people who have no education or very little education. All this has created a situation where we have uh, a, a highly fragmented country and despite the will that uh, Hollande or Sarkozy or even uh, Chirac had to uh, change the situation, no one has clearly addressed that but situation. I was talking to David Gurr about this the other day. David, get, jump in here very quickly because, David, this is where Mr. Macron has to be different than these previous leaders. Mm. Yeah, you know, you mentioned here, Maurice, just a moment ago that he's going to try to disrupt everything. How, how difficult is it going to be for him to do all of this? We can talk about the, the minutia of getting parliamentary votes and, and all that, but just to, to keep up this momentum, exactly. how hard is that exactly. going to be? It, 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 everything will start with the choice of um, the prime minister because uh, Macron will not be able to run for election and he will not be able to do anything else that one or two speeches on TV mm. yeah. to, for the legislative. Would you serve as prime minister? I'm uh, sure you're on the short list. <laughs> I, I, I'm not because what he needs to what? do, first, I'm too old. And the second aspect is what he needs to do is to have somebody who is ex 
experienced with the political parties yeah. and who knows how to run a legislative election, which is very different from a presidential. And he has to have somebody who really is very well versed. He has some options, and the, probably well, that Le Drian is one of the options. Mr. Lee, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much thank for your you, generous yeah. time no, thank with you. Bloomberg uh, today. I'm Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. He needs no introduction. Worldwide, Maurice Levy, of course, of Publicis. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keen in Paris. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Cover and analyze the results of the French election yesterday. Richard Attias joins us now, formerly of the Publicist Group, now chairman of Richard Attias and Associates, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. It's great to have you uh, with us. And I wonder if we could start with just uh, uh, your sense of uh, the, the lasting effects of this campaign. For an outside observer here in New York, it lasted a long time. Uh, just judging from that, that last debate, it was at times acrimonious. Where do we go from here? How do, how do we move past the legacy of, of this campaign? We, we, we definitely understood now that more than, uh, I would say, 12 million people in France are ready to vote for an extreme. And this is, I think, unfortunately, the first lesson. Populism is really next door. And despite the uh, election of uh, uh, President Macron, we still be very cautious about uh, what these people, these voters, could represent and could uh, also make as uh, a constraint for the new elected president to, uh, I would say, implement what he has in mind. So this is, I think, unfortunately, the first lesson. The second lesson is that uh, France, and this is the, the, the half full glass, I would say, which we have to, to, think in mi- to keep in mind, is that a very young, talented man mm. uh, who came from the private sector not at all from the political system, very audacious, was able to make it. Which means that France is able also to achieve great things. And some people are still are now dreaming and hoping that, I would say, in addition of the American dream, you can have the French dream. So everything is possible also mm. in France, which I think is very positive. And, um, and uh, I think that the new elected president, thanks to his audace, uh, very audacious, thanks to his, I would say, he has nothing to lose at the end of the day. Uh, so I hope that he will be able to implement the reforms which are really absolutely needed in France for years and years and years. Richard Attias, let's tackle those uh, in kind. Listening to the speech by the president-elect last night, he said he hoped that voters would never have to weigh voting for extremist candidates Again, when you look at Marine Le Pen and what happens next to her and to her party, what do you see? She's, she's positioning herself as the opposition figure here, says that her party will be the opposition party. What, what's your sense of the, the future of the National Front in France? You know, she's a tough cookie, and she knew how to reinvent the party, and she knew how to attract more voters. And even yesterday, she opened a window uh, saying that maybe she will even rebrand the party. So she sees herself, and she has a great window of opportunity because the right party is quite divided. The Socialist Party is also more than divided. So she has huge room to become, I would say, the Mm. first party of opposition. And this is quite scary because, uh, as you perfectly said, the presidential debate was really a demonstration that she doesn't care about even lying even putting wrong facts on the table just to destabilize everyone. Unfortunately, people in France who are jobless, hopeless, uh, it's, it's an easy, 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 I would say, community mm. to seduce mm-hmm. with these fake arguments. Now, Richard, good morning from your Paris. Wonderful to have you with us with your How perspective you uh, today. This has been one of my themes here. Is there a tinge of Anglo-American in Mr. Macron, or is he going to be a uniquely French president? No, I think he will be a global leader. I think uh, he is definitely, and I hope that the very in, in two weeks, as you know, the G7 uh, meeting is happening in Sicilia, and this will be for him the best opportunity to show to his pairs from the U.S., including the U.S. president, including the Prime Minister of Canada and many others who sent him nice congratulations message yesterday that they have to count with him. 
and um, and he's a global citizen. So you know, during his campaign, he did very well uh, in the U.S. He did very well yeah. in the U.K. with the French diaspora. So I think he has uh, definitely uh, a vision to be part of the global. All right, Richard Attias, we'll come back in just a moment. David Gura, it's a guest that we would always speak to in Paris, but you're enjoying his attendance in our studios in New York City. Yes, John Tucker and I enjoying his company very much here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Richard Attias with us here, chairman of Richard Attias and, and Associates. And um, I was looking back, uh, reading, rereading a profile uh, by Alyssa Rubin of the New York Times of the now president-elect, and she wrote, he's gambling that his post-partisan philosophy matches the national mood. What was it about politics in France at this point that encouraged voters to look outside the traditional party system? Where does the, the Republican Party, the Socialist Party, go from here in light of the fact that this upstart party has seen its candidate become the next president? In fact, um, uh, this, is, this was really predictable. For more than one year, I would say all the French uh, citizens were explaining that they were not anymore attracted by the traditional political parties. So definitely they have to reinvent themselves, no questions. And um, the reason why uh, Emmanuel Macron was elected is that definitely he symbolized not just the fact that he's a young potential leader, but he's really a centrist. So he is a guy who was able to be a catalyst between, I would say, some leaders from the right party and some leaders from the left party. And this is happening. So today, and, and you know, many people say France is an unmanageable country for years. But why it was it is an unmanageable country? Because the French people, frankly speaking, they want not to be seen as left or right. They are much more open and they want to be seen more as centrist. And this is what is happening. So if in six weeks from now, Emmanuel Macron is able to win the parliament elections. Mm -hmm. This will be a tremendous change in the whole political field in France because a party which was created just a year ago, able to get the majority, this will really uh, show that the whole landscape, the political landscape has changed. And I think this will happen and this could happen uh, because this is the only way to really fight and resist against the extremism. Because the Front National is just not a populist party, it's an extremist party. And this has to be understood, you know. Uh, when, you, when you watch the presidential debate a few days ago, you really realized that Marine Le Pen mm. is not, she, maybe she customized herself with some cosmetic to be a little bit different from her, the perception we had from her father. But in fact, I think she's absolutely identical. She was a pathological liar during this election, I can tell you, really, <sighs> by saying some facts which are absolutely wrong. It was not about fake news. It was about fake informations, which were really, really dangerous for people who are just watching and they have no clue about what is really the reality of the economy, the reality of, of many other aspects of the French economy and the French, I would say, position mm. in foreign policy. Richard, how, how, do you, how do you keep political engagement high in France? In other words, you have enthusiasm for a young candidate, now president-elect. You look, though at a quarter of the French electorate abstaining from voting in this election, pushing ahead to the parliamentary election, uh, Mr. Macron is going to need people to stay engaged with what he's doing. It's, it's a very important question. You know, he, he, I think uh, today Emmanuel Macron should do whatever is possible to become a brand. Uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau, Trudeau was elected in Canada, I remember that many people were asking if Canada could become again a brand thanks to Trudeau, who would like to play a big role. Definitely, this is the same opportunity which is offered to Emmanuel Macron. So he has to become a brand and he has to support and to make uh, France uh, becoming back, I would say, on the, on the global roadmap. And this will, I think, encourage many people to come back in, in supporting politics, in be interested by politics, with, because uh, he will be a, a new voice, a new language, uh, and I think he will not just reinvent the political field, but he has also to mm. reinvent the dialogue between the, the society, the youth, and the political leaders. Uh, for me, he is probably a potential public-private partnership, you know, symbol. And because he knows very well the private sector, he is uh, probably the first 
elected president and the first president who is really coming from a great experience in the private sector. So we need to reconciliate the right. so civil society and the political <clears throat> society. The prime minister position in France, Richard, explain to our global audience what the prime minister does in France and will it be someone like Mr. Macron or does he bring in someone from his diverse outside? This is, as you know, since you are in Paris, the most important question that everyone is asking today is who will be the next prime minister? Prime minister in France is a very important job. He is a guy who is running the government. He is a guy who is implementing, I would say, the strategy and the policies. And he, he has more or less full power to run the country at the end of the day because uh, uh, he's not just a, a ghost of the president. Right. And, um, and this is why everyone is waiting to know who will be the next prime minister, which will be probably announced in one week from now, but also who will be the winning party in the parliament election right. in six weeks from now, because by definition, the winner, the party who will win, will have to run the government. Having said that, um, I would say that the French people are expecting two things. Number one, to have the next prime minister to be someone with a solid experience, right. to bring a great experience on the table next to a young leader <clears throat> who Emmanuel Macron is not so experienced, to be honest, in politics, because he started three years ago, which is yesterday. And two... Yeah. They need someone very solid who will be able to resist in these difficult times of terrorism, of uh, really dealing with ISIS, and this is what people are uh -huh. expecting. Um, I, I know as the ugly American, Richard, which you've called me three times yeah. before, uh, in Paris, the world ends at the Arc de Triomphe. I believe to the south, there's a whole other France. How is Mr. Macron to be taken in the cities like Lyon? or Nice, or Toulon. Tell me about Lyon and what this election means for the second city of this nation. You know, uh, I think when you look at different cities, uh, Emmanuel Macron was elected with a very high ranking, except in the southeast of France, you know, and except in Corsica, where uh, even he was more or less 52%, 48% for, mm -hmm. for um, uh, Marine Le Pen. Why? Uh, France is very divided, uh, as you also saw during the first round. The North was really voting more for Marine Le Pen, where the South and the West was more voting for um, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, why that? Because it depends on the demography of, of, the, of the country. In the North, you have many people who have very low income, many jobless, they lost jobs because they were working in mining industries, in all these industries which are disappearing. And because they are hopeless, they think that voting for Marine Le Pen, they have nothing to lose, so maybe she will be the one who will bring a solution. So uh, I have to say that in, in big cities like Lyon, like Bordeaux, like Toulouse, people will support Emmanuel Macron. The problem is not about the big cities. The problem is about even some small cities where you have an employment rate uh, which is exceeding 20%. Mm. And this is where definitely you find a lot of silos of potential, I would say, populism and people ready to vote for extremism because they have nothing to do. To do. And the second point is about immigration. Mm. In France, you have a lot of immigration, so it depends on where you will find this immigration. In the south east of France, you find a lot of immigration issues, and this is why people are voting for Marine Le Pen. Richard, great to speak with you. Thank you very much. That's Richard Attias. He's chairman of Richard Attias & Associates, joining me here in New York. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people. 
and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. I am at Maison Blanche, which is where executives come to dine as they consider transactions and they consider the aesthetic of this nation. No one at all has any perspective on this and the linkage to government. Like Renaud Dutre, he is chairman LVMH and so much to do with design, the aesthetic of this nation, of course, with his public service as well, a member of parliament for a long time. I want to talk about your politics, uh, sir, first, which is what do you imagine the parliament elections will be June 11 and June 18th? How fractious will that process be? I think the French people are going to be very coherent. They're going to uh, follow up, you know, yesterday's vote and give to the new president a majority. At the you National think he'll get Assembly. a majority? Yeah, office, that's yeah. what yeah. has been happening for years and years over the Fifth Republic, mm-hmm. and it totally makes sense. You don't want to have a new president if uh, two weeks or three weeks later you deprive him of any power. And that's exactly what would happen if the president was not in the capacity of uh, forming a new cabinet. Within the technology of this nation, and by that I mean a broad sense of technology, including the world-class French design technology, which you've helped to invent, so many have said, including Eric Chenet was with us, that it's simply about the labor relationship and that productivity and a better economic growth will come from a better labor agreement. Are you optimistic that you can see a revolution in capitalism and labor relations in the nation? I think the next cabinet is going to be at war. War against terrorism, war against unemployment. Those are the two main issues we have to cope with. And of course, if we want you know, the companies to create more jobs, we have to add some flexibility in our labor organization. That's not easy because a lot of employees consider that uh, if the boss you know, has more ability to... Um, get free of uh, its employees. It's bringing less security to them. But that's the way it works. You know, we have to introduce more flexibility. And that's something that a lot of people are understanding. So we have to go fast to what is going to be an efficient labor system. If you're just joining us, folks, we're no Dutre with us of LVMH. David, please jump in from New York City. Yeah, let me just uh, get your perspective on why this candidate in particular was so attractive to people in the business community. Uh, in France. He was young, he's untested. Uh, what, what made him attractive to you and others? Uh, first, he's a very pragmatic person. You know, he's not ideological. He's not thinking according to abstract uh, patterns. He's just trying to make uh, sure that what's going to be done is working. We need that. Uh, the two main parties, the Socialist Party and the Republican parties, are dead. You know, they have not been able to fix the issues. They have been governing for years and years, and people are really upset with what they've been doing. So people want something new, Mm -hmm. and Macron is embodying a fresh and innovative approach of politics, much more pragmatic, being able, you know, to gather all the people who are in favor of progress, of modernization, and that's the hope he's raising today. And what, what would you like him to do? There's the hope. There's the goodwill, there's the sense of change, but what concretely can he do for business in France? Um, first, to lower taxes, you know, because uh, we have a complex uh, tax system. For instance, he's going to bring back the profit tax to 25%, which is mm-hmm. uh, much better than 33%. He's going to suppress um, m- the main part of our ISF, which is a tax our wealth. So that's also highly expected. He's going to uh, introduce a flat tax for all the income coming from uh, capital. Uh, he's going to simplify and is going to lower the tax burden. And that, of course, yeah. is highly expected from the uh, corporations. Uh, second, is going to find the right balance between uh, social uh, fairness and uh, economic efficiency. 
So he wants to invest in uh, technologies, he wants to invest in research and development. He doesn't think that the free market is able to achieve everything. He believes in a role for you know, the state and especially encouraging uh, research. That's why he launched his uh, call to uh, American searcher, you know, to come in France and, and settle down here. Uh, so he's uh, a very modern guy, open to globalization, but feeling that uh, uh, there are some losers in the globalization right. process and that something has to be done for them. No discussion, Mr. Dutrey, could be possible without talking to you about the French aesthetic, where it's, whether it's Air France commercials or what you've done at LVMH. Explain to our world audience what it means to have the American icon Five Guys hamburgers on the Champs Elysees. Are, are, are you are you still threatened? That's not in, true, in is France? it? Yeah, it is true. Oh Five Guys on Champs Elysees. You got. I mean, the Disney stores there. Fine, they've got Disneyland here. Are, is there still a worry of American commerce and design well, invading you know, your France? We, 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 I've been living uh, eight years in New York City and, with Parsons School and, and your and other support. Walking through Madison. Avenue, where you can see a lot of Italian and French brands, mm -hmm. and all those shops are expressing our lifestyle and art de vivre. I'm not shocked by the fact that you can have an American brand in uh, the Champs Elysees. The question is uh, is the food good? You know, that's a real question. Right. If people like the hamburgers, they will uh, buy right. American hamburgers. If it's uh, bullshit, they will uh, get to another brand. So the question is to bring some quality food. What people are very reluctant about is to have this kind of industrial food, right. uh, and sometimes it's assimilated, you know, to global companies which are not so careful about the provenance, you know, the origin of the vegetables, of the meat, of everything which makes a good French meal. And so uh, I'm, we are in a global world, but in the same time, uh, people in France they want to defend to protect their art de vivre. And they believe that this lifestyle, and LVMH, of course, is a good example of that, right. is able to be appealing to a large number we, of consumers all over the world. We see a transaction, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the transaction of Coach buying Kate Spade today uh, within uh, the United States. Give us a sense of the spirit of luxury right now. I was in the Gucci store next to Mr. Trump's abode <laughs> the other day, and it was knee-deep in people. It was a buzz there going with this brand or the other brand. I know Celine doing well and Louis Vuitton the same way with your retail. Look at you, Tom. Well, you no, know, but, this is, but this is important, <laughs> David, in that it is the aspiration mm. of Mr. Macron and the new capitalism that is out there. You know, the essence of uh, lifestyle uh, products, it's a mix between heritage and innovation, disruption and heritage. When some companies are able to mix those two dimensions, which are appealing to two parts of our brain, mm. we want to be comforted by what comes from the past, but in the same time, we want to be excited by what is looking forward, which is presenting a new visage face of the future. So that's exactly what those companies are able to do. Like, you know, when Vuitton is asking to Marc Jacobs to come in and, you know, uh, get the dust maybe out Even of the, American out the brand. Ethos, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always a question of uh, high-quality products first and then a cultural content. What uh, consumers today are looking for is mainly culture. It's functionality, price, and culture. Does celebrity matter like it used to? Sometimes it can help, but it's not the essence of those brands. The essence of those brands is this artisanal craftsmanship, know-how coming from you know, the ages which has been protected. It's part of our common patrimoine, you know. It's part of what mankind has been able to preserve over the last uh, decades. And I think that a lot of consumers, whether it is in North America or in Asia, are fond of this French and Italian lifestyle because it's, it's meaning happiness, you know, a well-balanced life. And I think that's well, the key of the success. Thank you so much, Rene Dutre with LVMH. From Paris, this is Bloomberg.
David Gura in New York. Tom Keen uh, is in Paris. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Pleasure now to be joined by Rashir Sharma, author of the book The Rise and Fall of Nations, Forces of Change in a Post-Crisis World, which will be available in paperback next month, I believe, contributor to the New York Times editorial page uh, as well, and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley. Great to have you with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Great to be here. Thanks. Let me start with a, with a broad question here. Uh, this was seen as a referendum on populism. Uh, are, are reports of its death premature? Do you think that this was the, the death knell, or, or are you still concerned about um, the degree to which it is a current around the world? No, I think, like, I'm still concerned about that, but I feel that, you know, like, it's very interesting, which is that of all places where populism seems to have sort of taken a break, it's in Europe, uh, because there was so much pessimism about um, what what happened in Europe regarding populism. And in fact, uh, like, I think it's quite remarkable that this sort of adds to the narrative that the European continent is not a continent which is permanently doomed for crisis, but is a continent where, in fact, a recovery is underway. And this political narrative is likely to change for the better. And this is something which is likely to keep inc- improving sentiment in Europe. I mean, for the first time, the European economy now, since the crisis, is growing at a pace which is even faster than the United States. And I think, that, like, for me, that's the big story. You have a president now who, who has been imbued with a lot of hope. A lot of people hope that he does change the way uh, the economy works uh, in France, changes the way that the tax system is structured, et cetera, et cetera. How much time do you think uh, the people of France and investors are willing to give him to do that? If anything, these last few months have been a cautionary tale here uh, in the U.S., investor enthusiasm and optimism matched by the realities of, of governance, the realities of Washington. Yeah. You know, like I have a slightly sort of different take here, which is the fact that I think that the that expectations out of him are rather low, even though he's won a very decisive victory in the second round. If you read much of the commentary, it is laden with a lot of skepticism. A lot of people sort of saying that there's not much that he can do. His uh, He has to now win the parliamentary elections and uh, so many sort of parallels being drawn with other leaders around the world, from Renzi in Italy to Sarkozy himself last decade, that so many leaders have come up, you know, with so much promise and have been able to deliver little. So the good news is that there's a lot of pessimism about what he can do. So the bar is quite low. And yet the mood in France seems to be turning. Um, As I've been saying, that I think that the battle for Europe is over, but the battle for France has just begun, uh, which is that in France, there's a very strong constituency in support of a single currency of the euro. And that's something which I think even Le Pen realized and uh, shifted her campaign in the last few weeks to being more sort of anti-immigrant than anti-euro per se. But within France, there's a deep divide about how much and what to do with the welfare state, but at least that debate has begun. France has the largest welfare state of any country in the world, with the possible exception of North Korea, right? So in terms of its government spending as a share of GDP is a staggeringly high 57%. And on every metric, France has been losing out uh, to the other countries, even within Europe. In per capita income terms, it has trailed the growth of other European countries. Uh, Its labor costs have gone up at a time when other countries from uh, Spain to Portugal have been cutting back on their labor costs to get more competitiveness. And a lot of people are leaving France. I think that last year, the largest number of millionaires that left any country in the world was France. Uh, something like 12,000 millionaires or something left France. So this is a country that uh, is in deep need for change. And the fact that you had Filon, uh, who managed to poll nearly 20% in the first round, and he's really a very sort of uh, classic right-winger um, in terms of a Thatcherite kind of uh, person. And he would have possibly won this election uh, had it not been for the scandal which uh, derailed him uh, in the last couple of months, the personal scandal regarding his finances. So I think that this is a country which is moving in the right direction. It remains divided. But the fact that so many French people are sort of now voting uh, for agendas uh, that are quite uh, reformist is, I think, a major step forward for a deeply socialistic country. Tom, I'm going to bring you in uh, in Paris. Yeah, we're in Paris. We thank uh, uh, many of the Uber drivers of Paris who have been shocked, uh, David Gura, find us on the radio dial here in Paris. Jonas, I know, is listening uh, from Haiti. He just sent me in a note uh, as well. Rashir, is France an emerging market? Is there just so much untapped technology and will that if they, excuse me, if they do find the will, are they the ultimate emerging market? 
<laughs> well, it depends how you define it, like emerging market. I guess what you're trying to say is that there's a lot of growth potential for this country if they manage to get things right. Yeah, sure. I think there are a couple of things which France has in its favor where it shares some characteristics you can argue with other emerging markets is the fact that its demographics are better than the rest of the continent, uh, that at least that you see uh, its demographics are far superior compared to Germany as far as uh, birth rates are concerned. Immigration is a is a much bigger issue because France has a pretty mm. poor track record in terms of assimilating immigrants, let's say, compared to Anglo-Saxon nations such as the United States or uh, UK. But the other place, I guess, where you can say that France is a bit like an uh, emerging market uh, is the fact that its productivity is, right. uh, is also quite high. Just the fact that people aren't allowed to work that much when you have sort of, yeah. you know, like a, a work week which uh, curbs working hours at 35 hours a week. So I think that, yeah, in terms of the potential for France to do better from here uh, with superior demographics yeah. and the fact that productivity can uh, is relatively high, just that people don't work as much. I think, yeah, uh, in that yeah. regard, you can call it that. And Maurice Levy of uh, Publicis was adamant about the 35-hour work week and the need to uh, make that a piece of history. Rusher, just because of the urgency of last week, I think we need to turn to your claim call on the commodity cycle. What did you make of the plummet in commodities, iron ore and such, but particularly in hydrocarbons last week? What did it signal? Well, I think that, you know, as far as oil is concerned, I've been saying that uh, a lot of people suffer from what we call the anchoring bias, which is that all because the price of oil went up to $140 a barrel last decade, we tend to often think of the fact that the price of oil today is very low compared to those highs. But as I've been pointing out, that if you look at the long-term price of oil in inflation-adjusted terms, the price you get is around where you are today, around $40, $45 a barrel. So from a long-term historical perspective, the price of oil today is not low. It is in line with its long-term history, just that it's low compared to where we got to last decade uh, at the fag end of a massive commodity super cycle. So in, in that regard, I think that oil is fo uh, following the classic historical pattern, which is that it had a massive boom and then a bust. And then if history is any guide, it will basically trade in a broad range for a long time to come around its historical mean. So I think the price of oil is set to trade within a $30 to $60 uh, barrel for a long time to come. And after having sort of gravitated towards the high end of the range, we are possibly now headed towards the lower end of the range. And the big surprise has been just how productive U.S. shale is and uh, the U.S. oil industry is. So I think that's the one big sort of driver as far as oil is concerned. The larger commodity complex on that, uh, my concerns still revolve around China. As I've said, is that China's growth trajectory has been on a downtrend since the start of a decade. The way I describe it is that China's growth trajectory resembles a ping pong ball bouncing down the stairs, which is that the trend is down, but every time the trend tends to accelerate a bit, they inject more credit, more stimulus into the economy, so you get a bounce up. And then the decline begins. I think that's exactly what's happened over the last year, that in uh, Jan, Feb of last year, uh, fears that the, uh, China would have a massive hard landing were sort of uh, really growing. So they injected massive amounts of credit and stimulus into the economy to uh, rescue the economy. That led to uh, some rebound in, in industrial activity, and we have seen a bounce up in commodity prices on the back of that. But now as growth seems to have peaked in China, the downtrend in growth has resumed. So I think that that's really the path that uh, commodities are likely to follow. The broad uh, point here being that after they have a big boom-bust cycle, mm. commodities tend to trade in a wide range for a long period of time and sort of don't go back to the old highs for a generation. Rishir Sharma, uh, sitting with David in uh, New York. And, and Rishir, I, I guess I want to talk about the correlations within the market and not so much equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, but the correlations of the actions of Chair Yellen with the market. Are we tantrum-like or setting, us, or setting ourselves up for further tantrums? Well, it could be because I think that the, you know, like the, uh, I think there are two sort of conflicting forces in the marketplace. One is the fact that now finally it seems that the U.S. is at full employment, and I find that fascinating. There's so much talk about robots displacing jobs and other things going on, but the fact of the matter is that the U.S. today is uh, uh, at about full employment, and that should finally lead to wages going higher. We've seen an uptick in wages, but so yeah. far wage growth has been quite disappointing 
compared to where it should have been at this stage of the economic cycle. On the other hand, I think that the deflationary forces from China continue to blow. And I think that even though we have seen a secession in that in the last year, as we just discussed, with commodity prices going up and Chinese sort of uh, producer prices skyrocketing, but I think that we are seeing a reversal of that. So I think that that play is going to continue, that sort of uh, conflict, which is on one hand... I see U.S. wages going up. On the other hand, because commodity prices are unlikely to do much in, uh, in the foreseeable future, right. and if anything may go to the bottom <clears throat> of the uh, trading range, I think that that's what is what uh, keeps sort of things right. interesting here. Where you know, uh, and that's why the ten-year is no, is barely moving in well, the last few weeks. But the partition here, as you know from uh, reading Hans Redeker, your colleague at Morgan Stanley, is the dollar dynamics, which could be different between say Europe and the dollar dynamics with Asia X Japan. Is Asia X Japan the ultimate alpha opportunity of the rest of this year? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, like, we don't like talking about regions that way because I think that, you know... Yeah, but come on, we're among friends. We're among friends. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that... But uh, my concern is that I think emerging markets, including Asia, Japan, have natural momentum going up because they are all reviving after, you know, like a long sort of uh, drought and timeout in the wilderness. But the problem there, like, I keep my one eye out on is China. That's the one thing which could still derail the Asia X Japan story because China is still very dominant in that region. And if Chinese growth so far is slowing down after sort of having peaked in the first quarter, but if that were to really slow down any further, that's the one thing which could sort of throw a monkey wrench into that trade. Let me bring in surveillance X Keen, which would be David Gurley in New York. David. (laughs) Thank you. Richard, let me me ask you about the, the U.S. relationship with China at this point. We watched the Summit unfolded at Mar-a-Lago more, more than a month ago. Uh, now I, I spoke with the Secretary of Commerce last David, week. He David, said, yeah. Mar- David, Mar-a-Lago is so April, it's so Bedminster April. now. I know, as we push on, push on <laughs> to June, we're to Bedminster, the new, the new White House North. Uh, Secretary Ross telling me last week that uh, the strategic and economic dialogue is going to continue. What's your sense of, of the relationship here? And as you look at the prospects for Chinese growth, how dependent are they upon that relationship with the U.S.? Well, I think that they are very dependent because, you know, they're still very much in, uh, you know, like an export powerhouse. Uh, the, they're the largest exporters in the world. And if there were ever to be any sort of trade skirmishes with the U.S. or any sort of, uh, uh, God forbid, trade war, that would have a major destabilizing effect on the global economy and particularly on China. So I think that everyone here needs to trade with care. I think that's what's going on. I, I know this, like, this is the broader question, which is that in November, we, uh, the entire discussion was about what effect would Trump have on markets and everything in the markets was all about the Trump administration. Here we are in May, and it's amazing, you know, like how investors have moved on, which is that in the in the in the marketplace now, there is very little discussion about the Trump effect. It has all gone back to sort of assessing each asset class or each trend on its own, and very little discussion about Trump. So I find this amazing disconnect that uh, that in the in the uh, general political discourse, no conversation can begin or end without a discussion about what Trump is doing or what the Trump administration is doing. In the in uh, marketplace, you know, like we uh, uh, we had a whole bunch of our team which attended the IMF World Bank conferences in DC last uh, uh, month, and they came back with the impression that very few people there are now talking about Trump anymore or the effect that Trump is having. So we have gone from this amazing sort of uh, discussion in. Uh, November, where everything was about, you know, what will have, you know, what effect will Trump have on every single relationship in the world? And now we have gone to that place where people are like, you know, what? Uh, there's not that much he can make a difference to. So people have gone back to sort of looking at each trend uh, individually and from a very economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. How are you going to watch that that minuet unfold? Uh, later this month at the G7 in Italy, you, ha- you have President Trump traveling there to meet with his counterparts. His first trip trip overseas. Uh, I imagine we're going to see play out there what we've seen it play out before with uh, you know, his trips the Treasury Secretary has taken, tri- trips that the Secretary of State has taken. There'll be a lot of counterparts curious as to what this president thinks about the, the world order, what he's going to do. What are you going to be watching for? Well, I think that in terms of, you know, like, you know, what the dynamics are, you know, how exactly like it plays itself out. But my feeling is that from a financial market standpoint, this is going to be a basic non-event, uh, which is the fact that, you know, G7 meetings have long ceased to have any effect as far as investors are concerned. And I think that uh, yeah. I know that you know, there'll be intense focus in the in the political space and in the media about Trump and how he's interacting with other leaders and stuff like that. Right. But from a financial market standpoint, I think that people well, are, you know, like... Uh, 
we've got to separate that discussion okay. completely from the political theater. Rashir, I got to make money to get home right now. Do I need to go short oil? Nobody seems to be predicting 42 or even to breach 40 or 39 oil. What is that likelihood, the probability of breaking out of the mother of all ranges? Well, I think that the probability is uh, high, which is the fact that the that the dynamic on the oil market still seems as if uh, you know prices want to get lower. And I think you rightly point out very few people are prepared for lower prices yep. because everyone's been thinking that the risk is to the upside. So yeah, I, I mean, if you want to buy downside uh, sort of a breakout stuff, you, it's possibly better than buying an upside uh, option here. Are you watching OPEC? What's the likelihood that that production freeze has continued? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, like, they will likely continue, but I think the power of OPEC is greatly overstated. I think that, uh, you know, we, uh, that OPEC makes for great headlines and what happens there, but I really feel the power is overstated. And in the end, yeah. it's back to the same discussion that, uh, you know, that do they want to lose more market share to U.S. shale uh, because it's come back uh, in such a big way and seem to be much more productive than people had expected? Uh, right. I'm not quite sure they want to do that. You're your classic Rashir's breakout nations in pursuit of the next economic uh, miracle. Where is the next economic miracle? Could it be the recovery of Venezuela off the absolute heartbreaking bottom? Or is it some other story? No, I think that Latin America in general is doing much better. I think it's a continent which, you know, we don't talk about that much, but it's the yep. one continent still following the economic orthodox model. I, I was in Brazil last month. I was really impressed by the kind of reforms that Brazil is carrying out mm -hmm. with its back to the wall. But that's the story, you, that all countries which have their back to the wall are the countries which carry out economic reforms because that's the only time that they seem to do, and that's what's going on. But I think the big trend in the world today is that the U.S. market seems to be hitting a relative peak compared to the rest of the world, with the dollar also showing signs of exhaustion. So I think the opportunities are international, whether it's Europe, it's Japan, okay. it's parts of emerging markets. I'm finding much more opportunity international now than here in the United States. Rashir, thank you so much. As always, thank you from Paris. I'm sure David will greet us out here. Uh, but it's just wonderful, folks, to have Mr. Sharma with us of Morgan Stanley. Yeah, our David? global coverage continuing here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Rashir Sharma, the global uh, head of strategy at Morgan Stanley, the author of The Rise and Fall of Nations, an incredible book, Forces of Change in a Post-Crisis World, as I said, out in hardback now, available in paperback yeah. uh, next month. Look for his columns uh, in the New York Times Monthly uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.